So we are turning our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, or continue our studies in Luke's Gospel. What's unique about the God of the Bible is that he's a promise-making or a covenant-making God. See, other gods in, in history and in other religions tend to play by their own rules. They're a bit capricious, and if they want to go against you, they can go against you, and they just do what they want. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is different from that because he binds himself to human beings in history and promises that he will do exactly what he says for them. doesn't have to do that. Uh, it's not on the basis of some excellent performance of human beings that he comes alongside them and says, oh, because you've ticked all these boxes, then I'm going to guarantee you all of these promises. But he comes alongside them in their need and in helplessness and says, in spite of all of your helplessness, in spite of all of your sinfulness, I'm going to pledge myself to you to be your God and to rescue you and to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And this then is the story of redemption, the story of a, a gracious God who steps into human history in our misery and says to us, I promise you that I will rescue you and that I will put right what you have done wrong. And the story of the Bible then is the story of the progressive outworking of how God keeps his promises, how what God says, he does. And as we've been working our way through this gospel according to Luke, We've seen that Luke, the writer, he keeps on emphasizing how God is keeping his promises through Jesus Christ. And he says from the very outset, we talked about this a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, that he is writing about the things that have been fulfilled among us. And so when he recounts what happened through Jesus Christ, he's recounting the story of how God has fulfilled his promises that he made long ago. When he talks about the joy of Mary and Zechariah, for example, their joy keeps on coming back to this fact that God has kept his promises. God has remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has remembered to do what he said he was going to do. And so this is what they keep on rejoicing in. And in our passage last week, we're reminded of the fact that that God keeps his promises precisely because he's got the whole world in his hands and he orchestrates the affairs of human beings, governments, individuals, so that what happens is exactly what he wants to happen so that he can bring about the fulfillment of his promises. And in our passage this week, we're going to see more about how Jesus specifically fulfills the ancient promises that God had made to his people. Theophilus is the chap that Luke is writing to. And he really needed to hear this because he probably was wondering himself, to himself, is this Jesus, the, the one who has been promised, is he really the one who has been sent by God in fulfillment of all of God's promises? Because after all, Jesus differed from some of the expectations that Jews had in the first century about the Messiah, the one who was to come. Um, they expected a deliverer who would set them free from the oppression of the Romans, that would put an end to all injustice, and everything would be peace and prosperity ever afterwards. But Jesus hadn't done that. Uh, Jesus had actually been crucified by the Romans rather than conquering the Romans. And Theophilus is probably wondering himself, well, is this Jesus really the one who fulfills God's promises? Or should we be looking for somebody else? And Luke writes to him to reassure him that this Jesus... 
is the one who fulfills God's promises. He's the one who keeps God's plans. And we need to hear that too, because we need to be reminded that the one that we follow is the one who has fulfilled all of God's promises. And just as God has kept his promises the first time in sending Jesus Christ into this world, he's going to keep his promises the second time when Jesus Christ comes back to put everything right in full full fulfillment of all that God has said he's going to do. And we need to be reminded that God has kept his promises here. He's going to keep his promises again, and he's going to do for us what he has promised. And so with that in mind, we turn to our passage today. It's Luke chapter 2, verse 21, down through to the end of the chapter. It's a lengthy section. I'm going to read that together. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And this is the word of the Lord. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they find him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. 
Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now, here we are presented with two temple scenes. One is the young child, the young baby Jesus being taken into the temple. And the second is when he's taken as a young boy of 12 to the temple. And in both scenes, Jesus is presented to us as the one who fulfills God's promises. In the first, we've got these two witnesses, Simeon and Anna, and they come up and they testify to the fact that God is fulfilling his promises through this child, this baby that has been born. And in the second temple scene, we've got Jesus actually demonstrating through what he says, through what he does, that he is the one who has come in fulfillment of God's promises. He's the one who's been sent as the son of God himself. And when we look at that first temple scene then, it's set in the context of reminding us that Jesus is born into a family of faithful Israelites. We're reminded that Jesus hasn't sprung out of some strange sect of Judaism that isn't standing in continuity with God's promises, but rather these are faithful Israelites, the ones who have been waiting for God to do what he has promised, and in answer to all of their hopes and expectations, Jesus has come. And so we've got these faithful parents and faithful Israelites who are waiting, and they take the Lord Jesus to Jerusalem to, um, uh, to be consecrated. So he's circumcised and then taken to the temple to be consecrated. Now in Israel, the firstborn sons were those who had to be specially dedicated to the Lord because we see that they, they specially belonged to the Lord. And the reason for that was because back at the time of the Passover, remember the destroying angel passed through the land of Egypt and killed all the firstborn sons in Egypt. But the firstborn sons of the Israelites were spared because they had the blood over the doorposts. And God did not kill the firstborn sons of the Israelites. That then meant that the firstborn sons of the Israelites, in that very real sense, belonged to God. And the way that you had to get that child back was to pay a redemption price, to buy that child back from God, as it were. And so in fulfillment with what the law required, we see Jesus' parents taking him to the temple and they're paying this redemption price in order to receive him back from the Lord because he specially belongs to the Lord. We also see their care in bringing the sacrifices required because they have become ritually impure as a result of the birth. And the law made these specific stipulations about what you needed to do in order to be clean, in order to be ritually pure. And so they come to bring a sacrifice of a pair of doves or a pair of pigeons. This is a rather strange concept for many of us. Uh, but in Israel, contact with various things, such as certain animals or human blood, for example, rendered you ritually impure. It wasn't that you became a sinner. It was that you were in contact with things that had to be strictly separated from the presence of God. So in order to enter into the presence of God, you had to be in a state of cleanness. And what God was teaching the Israelites is that his presence was so distinct and so sacred that it had to be kept separate from anything that was, that was uh, just merely to do with human beings. You're entering into the presence of God, and so there's many things to do with human beings, like contact with human blood, that has to be kept completely separate. And the only way then that you can be made clean again is through the offering of various sacrifices. 
And so this was teaching the Israelites about how, how sacred and important the presence of God was. But the point that we're seeing here is not a detailed discussion about purification or sacrifices and so on. But the point that Luke is simply making is that these are faithful Israelites. They're obedient to all that the law of God requires. They're faithful to that. And they're standing in the line of people who are waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And then that sets the scene for the arrival in the temple of both Simeon and Anna. And with both of them, there's this real stress on their faithfulness to God, their devoutness to, before God. And we come across this man, Simeon, an old man, and we read that he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for that comfort that God's going to bring to his people when he fulfills his promises. And he, he takes this child Jesus as he sees him in the temple. And in a prayer which is traditionally known as the Nunc Dimittis, the, the, now you may let your servant depart in peace, he prays, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And not only then is he rejoicing that God has kept his promises to his people by sending this child, but that God has kept very specific promises to Simeon. Uh, the Holy Spirit had promised Simeon that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And here he is. God has kept his promises for Simeon. Anna, she's brought in as another witness. And you'll see it time and time again in Luke's gospel, Luke is very keen to emphasize the role of women in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And she's brought alongside Simeon. And she too, this prophet who is at the temple, uh, waiting for the Messiah to come, is overjoyed when she sees the Messiah. And she comes along and she gives thanks that God has sent his Messiah. And she starts telling everyone there that's been waiting for God to keep his promises that he's come. God has kept his promises. And so all of God's people start to get really excited about what God is now doing. Now, I'll come back to these witnesses and think about the specifics of what they have to say. But for now, I just want to emphasize this this picture that we've got of faithful Israelites waiting for God to keep his promises. And now they're saying, God has kept them. God has sent his Messiah. And when we get to the second temple scene then, Jesus, now he's 12 years old, he's back at Jerusalem again. And again, we see it's all part of faithfulness to God's instructions. They're coming for the Passover festival. And they've spent this time rejoicing and worshipping with, with God's people. And now they're on their way back home again. And so they travel on for a day and Jesus' parents assume that Jesus is traveling with other friends or family and they don't realize that he's back in Jerusalem again. So they travel for a day, realize he's not there, and then they travel back again, which takes them another day. And then on the third day, they, they come across Jesus and he is in the temple. And everyone is listening to Jesus as he's discussing probably the scriptures with these temple scholars and they're amazed at all he has to say. But the most interesting thing is not the discussions that he's having with the scholars. It would have been really interesting to hear what was going on there. But what Luke records for us is the conversation that takes place between Mary and Jesus. Because Mary, she's a bit upset. She's, why, why have you put us in this situation? You've made us think that you've gone missing. We've been really anxious and distressed. And Jesus' response is to point out that what he's doing is in keeping with the mission that God has given to him. He says that he must be in his father's house 
or he could translate it, he must be about his father's business or his father's work. He is stressing that his real parents, or his real parent, is the father, God himself. And yes, he's got responsibilities to Mary and Joseph, but ultimately, his allegiance is to God. He is the faithful son, and all human ties are secondary to that. And again, the reality that we're confronted with here is that the one that we're coming into contact with is the fulfillment of God's promises. God had promised that he was going to send a son. God was going to send one who would faithfully represent God and bring about God's plans. And Jesus is saying and showing that he is that one. Now, there's much that I could point out in these verses that talk about how the Lord Jesus fulfills God's promises to us. But I just want to pick up on three things that stood out to me. And there's many other things, but I just want to pick out on three things that I thought were interesting. And the first is that we see here that this is the Messiah who brings salvation to all peoples. Now, when you look at God's history of what he has done to bring about redemption, you see that his promise of salvation was made to very specific individuals, specifically to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God pledged that he would be their God and they and their descendants would be his people. And God chose this particular ethnic and national group to be his very own, where he would reveal himself and reveal his plans. And the only way that other nations and other ethnic groups would come to know the true God is if they happened to become Israelites. And there were a few people, if you look through the Old Testament, you see a few people that actually do this, that become Israelites because they've discovered that he is the true God. All the other people groups were known as Gentiles. These were the non-Jews that didn't have a relationship with God. But when God made his promises that one day he would send his Messiah, he would bring salvation, God promises that not only is he going to save the Jews, but he's going to save non-Jews as well. I want you to listen to the words of Isaiah in chapter 49 and verse 5. And Isaiah says, And now the Lord says, and he's speaking prophetically of the Messiah, the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so God's plan is to send his servant, the Messiah, who's not only going to bring back the Israelites back to himself after they turned away, but he's going to reach out to, to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, and he's going to bring them back to himself as well. And so you fast forward to Luke chapter 2 and verse 30, where you see Simeon, he's got this little baby in his arms, and he prays, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He's saying, here's where God's promises are being kept. Here is the salvation. He's going to bring Jews and Gentiles back to God into relationship with God. And this would have been really important for Theophilus because Theophilus, judging by his name and various other features, was probably not a Jew. And he's probably standing on the outside wondering, 
how can I be part of the people of God as well? How can I be part of all these promises that God has made? And here Luke's reminding him that what's taking place in Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to bring Jews and Gentiles together to know the true God. And perhaps we don't rejoice in this or uh, um, treat this with the importance that it deserves because the passing of years and the distancing between Christianity and Judaism has made it feel very much that that Christianity is a a Western religion, something that that belongs to us. And and actually, it doesn't. Uh, We ought never to forget the fact that we have got no ethnic claim to be part of the people of God. We've got no ethnic claim to be part of the people that God pledged to be their God. And the Messiah was sent specifically to Israel to restore Israel back to himself. And the fact then that non-Jews, us for the most part, are called to belong to the people of God is nothing short of astonishing. Think about UK citizenship. It's something that we actually don't treat as valuable as as we should sometimes. Deduzi and Sharon proved that for us when they discovered that not having UK citizenship or not having a UK, UK passport can mean arbitrary things like not being allowed into a country, not being allowed to travel. And we forget the privileges that we sometimes have as UK citizens. And, and we don't realize how important they are until we don't have it or we lose it. Now, the same thing goes for being part of the people of God, our citizenship as part of God's people, part of God's kingdom. We don't realize how important that is at times. Because Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, remember that formerly you were separate from the Messiah, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in the Messiah, Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. See, once we were not part of the people of God and we'd got no right to be part of the people of God. We'd got no part in those ancient promises. But God has kept his promises to bring us in as well. We've been planted in that long line of covenant promises, sharing in what God is doing in the plan of redemption. And it's all because of Jesus, the light for revelation to the Gentiles. And that's what Simeon rejoices in. Now, the second thing that we note from what Simeon says here is that the Messiah is going to fulfill God's plans not only by being a light to the revelation of the Gentiles, but he's going to be the one who's going to be rejected. He says in verse 34, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And that too, that rejection of the Messiah is part of God's plans. Isaiah writes about this as well. Um, You think of Isaiah chapter 53 and he writes about the rejection of the Messiah there. But think specifically of Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14 where he writes, For both Israel and Judah, he, the Messiah, will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that causes them to fall. And that's a a passage that gets picked up again and again in the New Testament when, when the New Testament writers are thinking about the nature of Jesus, the Messiah. Isaiah's point is that God's saving work is going to be like 
a firm rock. You can stake everything on the solidity of what God is doing. But just as a rock can be a foundation for something, it can also be something that people trip over. It can be something that makes people fall. And it's that kind of imagery that Simeon has just imbibed and is then thinking about when he says that this child is destined for the falling and rising again of many in Israel. Because for some, he's going to be the rock that they rise on as God builds his new covenant community. And for some, he's going to be the rock that they trip over and they fall because they stumble over Jesus. And this is something that Theophilus needs to be reminded of. He would have wondered why, after all, the Messiah was rejected if this was God's great plan that he was outworking for the world, if God's plan was for the Messiah to defeat his enemies, to bring peace to his people, then why this rejection? And he needs to be reminded that this was also part of God's plan, and it's no different for us today. We wonder, why should we follow this defeated man who died in shame on a Roman cross? Why should we stake our lives on the hope that this man, who was last seen by the world on a cross, is going to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Why should we stake our lives on that? Simply because we believe that he is the rock that God has set in place, who is both a cause of stumbling and also the rock of our salvation. Simeon, he didn't know how it was all going to pan out. He didn't know how it was all going to end up with Jesus' death on the cross. But he could see from the very outset judging by what God had said in his promises, that Jesus would actually be rejected by many, uh, many in Israel. And he could see that Jesus would be the touchstone to test what was really in people's hearts. Because as people encountered Jesus, it would become very clear whether or not they valued what God values in the person of his son, or whether they rejected God's way of bringing salvation to the world. And for those who pledged themselves to Jesus Christ, who valued Jesus Christ, it would be evidence of the fact that God had worked in their hearts to transform them, to bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and they really were God's people. And so today, when many others around us reject Jesus as the Messiah and see nothing in him worth giving their lives for, we need to be reminded that his rejection is part of God's purposes. It's the fulfillment of God's plans. And God's plan is for Jesus to be the touchstone that reveals what's in our hearts. And when Jesus and his death are presented to us, every one of us are faced with the question of whether or not we turn away from him and say that this is nothing but shame, which is the way that the wisdom of the world thinks. They look at Jesus and his death on the cross and say it's shameful. Or do we look at him and see that this is the rock that God has put in place? This is the one who has brought about God's purposes, that has died for us on the cross and has enabled us to be reconciled to God and so entrust ourselves entirely to him. And so we see the fulfillment of God's promises. As Simeon says, that Jesus was destined to be the cause of the falling and rising of many. The thirdly and finally, uh, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purposes by being the true son of God who was entirely devoted to his father. And so in the temple, we see him as a young boy saying to his mother, did you not know 
I had to be in my father's house. And we need a savior like this who is wholeheartedly devoted to his father. You see, God had previous sons, if we want to use that expression. And the Bible uses that expression. Chapter 3, verse 38, for example, of Luke. In a few weeks' time, we're going to come across that. And we're going to see that Adam is called the son of God. Because he was created by God to represent God, to be the head of humanity. And we all know how Adam wandered away from God and, and rejected God. Israel, too, as a nation, was adopted to be God's son. God says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And nationally, they were to be the people that represented God, that were in close relationship with God, and mediated the relationship of God to the world. But again, we see that they keep on walking away from God until God exiles them away from his presence. And so we need a son who will come, a son of God, who will faithfully represent God, and who will lead God's people back into relationship with himself. And that's why God promised that one day he would send a son who would rule God's people faithfully. And you see it in various passages, but Psalm 2 stands out especially for me. And in Psalm 2, you've got this wonderful dramatization of the coronation of the son. And in verse 7, it says, that the Messiah speaks, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And so is this coronation scene where the son is enthroned in glory. It's not that he wasn't the son before that, but that at the coronation he becomes the son in the fullest sense. He comes into possession of all of his rights as son. And so God's people, down through the centuries, longed for the day when God would send the Son to lead God's people back to himself. And they waited and waited until one day Jesus steps on the scene and says, Did you not know that I had to be in my Father's house? Because he is the Son that they've been waiting for. He, the Son, has stepped into human history in closest relationship with the Father to point people back to the Father and to bring people back to the Father. And he can do this because unlike all the previous sons who were failures, he is the son who is completely devoted to his Father above all earthly ties. And no wonder then that Luke concludes this section by saying that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And here Luke's saying that both God, his Father, and human beings are delighted with who they encounter in Jesus Christ. He is everything that God's people had longed for. He is everything that God wants him to be for us. And Theophilus needed to hear that. This is the true Son of God sent to bring about God's will. There's no one else that can reconcile us to God. No one else that can fulfill all of God's promises and bring us back to God. So Jesus Christ, says Luke, is the one that you need to know. He is the true son. And so in this passage, we see Jesus Christ presented to us as the one who fulfills all of God's promises. All the promises 
the dreams, the hopes for the future that God's people had, that they'd been waiting for for hundreds of years, come true in Jesus. And Luke presents him to us with excitement, with joy, and says to us, as it were, take a look at him. Look at what people say about him. Look at what he does. Look at the excitement that greeted him at his, at his arrival. This is the one that you need to be excited about as well. And we then know that if God has started to fulfill his promises through Jesus Christ at his first coming, then God is going to bring those promises to completion. And Jesus will bring God's redemption to fulfillment when he comes again. And so we trust in the God who has kept his promises, who continues to keep his promises, and will keep his promises to us. And Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills all of those promises to us. And so we trust in the God who keeps his promises and stake our lives and our eternity on that man who entered this world 2,000 years ago and say that he is the one that we will stake everything on. May God help us to do that day by day. Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that in your words you reveal to us Jesus Christ. And though we have not seen him, we love him.